Let's, uh, let's pray as we, as we get into the Word this morning. Father, thank you so much for your Word. Your Word is life. Your Word is truth. Your Word is your will. Your Word is your way. Your Word is ultimate truth. There is no truth that can rise above your Word. The way we wage war in the Spirit is by pulling down every thought that exalts itself against your Word. I thank you, Father God, that we stay safe as we grab a hold upon your, onto your Word, which will last forever. Heaven and earth will pass away. Your Word will remain. You have placed your Word above yourself. And if you place your word above yourself, we dare not place anyone or anything above your word. We humble ourselves to your word. This is proof that we are not walking in pride. In Jesus' name, amen. Since we're talking about a well-ordered church, we also have to talk about a well-ordered family. A well-ordered family. And to have a well-ordered family, we have to have well-ordered marriages. Because without well-ordered marriages, there's no such thing as a well-ordered covenant. And the number one image that we express in God's covenant towards us is that in marriage. Marriage expresses God's covenant to us. You all know the story of Hosea the prophet, where God told him, Go and find for yourself this wife, <clears throat> and she was unfaithful. She remained unfaithful, and God called Hosea to remain faithful to her. Now, this is not a blueprint for marriage, folks. Okay. Some verses are prescriptive, other passages are descriptive, and then others are proscriptive. Descriptive passages are exactly that. They describe something. It describes to us how Christ remains faithful to His bride even when she is unfaithful to Him. And so Hosea is a, is a descriptive portion in Scriptures describing to us Christ's relationship with us and our relationship with Him. A prescriptive passage is when it says, <clears throat> Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. How? He gave Himself up for her. That is a prescriptive, it's a prescribed way of living. And then a proscription is when a passage of Scripture tells you what not to do. What not to do. And so, when we look at this marriage, the concept of marriage, we see that the Bible starts off with a marriage between Adam and Eve, and the Bible ends with a marriage between Christ and the church, and in between these two marriages, book, bookends, Life. Covenant bookends life. Life is about covenant. And I say this so many times, and I want to just drive the point home, but, you know, you and I have both experienced this where we have been in um, a semi-desert. We've been in a place that wasn't the most convenient or comfortable. It's not a paradise at all, but we loved it because of who we were with. We feel confident and secure because of the kind of relationships we have. Or you can also put that in the other context where you've been in a paradise and you've had a perfect everything, convenience and so forth, except for you hated being there because of who you were with, right? <laughs> then you've been in another place in life where you're sitting there and you're filled with regrets because of what you did, because of who you were with. <laughs> yeah, right. You remember that? It's almost everything that you regret is because of somebody that you were with or that somebody that influenced you. So relationships are important. Most important relationship you have outside of Christ is that of a covenantal relationship. And the heart of a covenantal relationship, as you zone in, is what? Marriage. Marriage is what shows us what covenant looks like. So the question that most people need to know that are already married is, did I marry the wrong person? 
The answer to that question is simple. The day that you said, I do, was the day that marriage to that person became God's will for you. That's how you know it's God's will. You said, I do. She said, I did. did. (laughs) No, I do. She said back then, I do. (laughs) So people wonder which person is God's will for them. Well, the Bible teaches more about the fact that marriage is God's will for you than um, who it is that you married. (laughs) You know, it's the fact that you are married. This is God's will, and now work through it. I like to say this, that God never called us to marry the person we love God called us to love the person we married to because really what you had for the person when all emotions were flying high wasn't truly love. That's chemicals. You can call it whatever you want, lust. But really, marriage is making something work because you remain committed to that covenant relationship that you have. And that relationship is a covenant relationship and couldn't be one had it not been God making two people one. And so God made you one and therefore The person you are married to is, in fact, God's will for you. You have to fight tooth and nail to make that work. Hosea did, and he was a great example to us of a covenant relationship. You see, many people always, many people ask the question, well, am I married to the right person? How do do I know I'm married to the right person? Well, to be honest with you, your behavior in marriage Actually, I want to ask the question differently. People ask, how do I know I'm in God's will for being married to this person? How do I know I'm in God's will? I like to say that your behavior in marriage takes you in or out of God's will for your life. It's not the fact that you are married or who you're married to. It's how you treat the one you are married to. That is God's govern. God, God governs marriage, and that is His known moral will. And for us to be in His will is for us to submit to His known moral will. So I've learned most often it is not two people that are incompatible. It has nothing to do with incompatibility. Why? Because many people who are super incompatible have fantastic marriages. Oftentimes, that's a good thing. Imagine two introverts being married. Then again, imagine two complete extroverts being married. (laughs) It's like, shut up already. We love, Tina and I love to do this when people have visited us on the way out. When they get to the door, I ask, so just a question, who spoke more, Tina or me? And I love how people squirm. They go like, well, you know, well, you know I mean, I mean, I mean, she's like. <laughs> the actual problem is not two people wrong for each other. Nobody's right for each other. Have you ever noticed that? Nobody is right for each other. If they were, then You could never say, well, every marriage has its challenges. (laughs) But because we say, and it's true that every marriage has its challenges, it's true that nobody is actually perfectly compatible. Just no such thing. The, the, The honest truth is, you ain't even compatible with self. How many times have you looked in the mirror and gone like, shh, what a jerk. I wish I could get away from you. Another day with you. Nobody's perfectly compatible. Nobody's really right for each other completely. But two people taking the wrong roles are always wrong for each other. Two people, broken people, imperfect people, you don't even repent perfectly to God. Nothing we do is perfect. Somebody goes, I do some perfect things. Your imperfection is the assessment of self. All right? Nobody's perfect. Right? <laughs> you see, everybody has a blind spot, and there's yours. <laughs> nope. 
Now, Tony, can you please tell me where I was? <laughs> no two people are perfectly compatible with one another. You're not even compatible with yourself perfectly. But two people taking on wrong roles is always completely incompatible. You can be sexually completely compatible. You can both like, you can both like the same kind of fishing types. You can both like the same music and be completely incompatible when you do not stand within the roles given to you by God. He's the one that designed marriage. Life starts with a marriage, or the history of humanity starts with marriage, and history of humanity ends with a marriage. God designed marriage. He designed the roles of marriage. He designed the responses and the responsibilities to those roles. And until we actually embrace those roles, we can never be compatible with one another, even if we like the same musicians and artists, and songs. But, however, two very broken, incompatible people could have a marriage on fire if they actually identify, submit to, and fulfill the positions and the roles and the responsibilities God gave them in marriage. You, two, you also have seen this. You see two people, they're loving marriage, and you go like, how did they ever get together? Like, how did he get her? <laughs> you know, like, have you, ever, have you ever asked yourself that question? Like, two people just really loving marriage. Well, I tell you, that is what God has planned for you. So I wanted to just mention some things about roles and responses. And these roles are basically the role you play. Anyway, roles make or break a marriage. Ephesians 5.23 says, For the husband is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church. His body of which he is the Savior. He is the head of the church, and so the husband is the head of the wife. And I've got to say this only because this is the air we breathe today. This is the culture we live in today. This is the acceptable norm. And as a matter of fact, it's not just become the acceptable norm. It's become the rule. You are the exception. But the rule is feminism. The feminist movement we see today is in fact, I want to clearly said, I wish, I can't wait for the day somebody cancels us, just so you know. So I don't mind what I say. But the feminist movement is in fact the handiwork of Satan. As he tirelessly works his ancient old game plan of deceiving who? Adam? Eve was, Eve believed anything and everything. Truth, lies, she just, she's gullible in a way. But that's a strength in a way, if you think about it. Doesn't the Bible say love believes all things? Aren't women the one that they believe things quickly? The boy tells the girl, I love you. <gasps> he loves me. No, he doesn't. <laughs> Your dad says he doesn't, therefore he doesn't. <laughs> because your dad said, saw how he looked at you. He doesn't love you. She will, she will fight her dad tooth and nail because she believes everything she's told. We've talked about why it is. The Bible says that the woman is the weaker vessel, uh, not less valuable, just more fragile which has a lot of great things about being fragile. How would you like to be married to your wife who acts like the most unfeeling guy you know in the world? <laughs> like, I'm married to somebody with no emotional issues. As a matter of fact, she has no emotions at all. You know, imagine that. No, you don't want that. You want somebody who is sensitive, but with that comes fragility. And I gave you the example of, you know, here you have a vase, shall I say, vase, just so you know. And it's a, it's a, it's a $2 million vase. And then here you have a sledgehammer. It's a $25 sledgehammer. <laughs> the one is, has a lot of weakness, very fragile. The other one, no, you can just... Break everything with it, it never breaks. The other one, 
So you know how to treat it because of how fragile it is. And in the same way, the Bible says, husbands live with your wives with all understanding. Why? Because she is the weaker vessel. Maybe a lot more valuable, but very fragile. But with it comes wonderful benefits. She's not callous. She's not unfeeling. She's not cold. So we have to live with them with understanding this about them. But the one thing is that she believes when she hears. She believes quickly. When a couple grows old, imagine, I don't want to call anybody out, but imagine there you are, you and your husband. You're both 90 years old. Let me ask, who's everybody going to expect is the most cynical between the both of you? The wife or the husband? The husband. Cynical old man. Yeah. Life's a dragon, then you die. <laughs> you know, cynical as the days long, but the, the, the truth of the matter is that um, God, made us, God made us this way, right? They're very believable. But this is exactly what happened in the garden. For husbands is the head of the wife, as Christ is the head of the church, his body, for which he is the Savior. So the feminist movement is really still uh, Satan's handiwork. It is Satan's old game plan, deceiving women uh, who are the weaker vessel, quick to believe not just truth but also lies. So men, on the other hand, they weaker in a different way. Um, they weaker in the sense that they give in. And they're like, yeah, whatever. I don't have the emotional capacity or ability to actually have to like deal, go walk through all of that with somebody. So, so hey, whatever. And that's kind of like the man. If you take a list of all the feelings a girl can have, compassion and empathy, and I mean, you can just go down the list, right? I mean, it's a long list of feelings. You ask a man, what feelings, what feelings are there? Mad, glad, sad. There they are. In a nutshell, mad, glad, sad. I'm one of those three. A woman, no, they, they run through millions of feelings. <laughs> so men are oftentimes weaker in the sense that they just, you know what? They don't oftentimes fight for their households the way they should. They don't oftentimes fight for their marriages the way they should. They don't often fight for the purity of their household the way they shouldn't. And they really should. Adam, obviously, um, was at fault. Because um, why was the snake in the garden Adam was responsible over? Why was the snake running around saying whatever he wants to, to whomever he wants to, while Adam is the one in charge and responsible for what happened in the garden. Obviously, he was, he was allowing something that he shouldn't have allowed, and he dealt with the, or the consequences thereof. Either he, you know, allowed the, uh, the snake into the garden, which he shouldn't have, or he allowed the snake to speak, which he shouldn't have, or he allowed the snake to speak to his wife, which he shouldn't have. And that's why, uh, and I don't want to sound, you know, this day and age is so difficult to talk about any of these kind of things, but Tina and I, <clears throat> we have a very uh, transparent, I, you know, concept as far as, you know, as we study scriptures. We love to talk about the Bible and about things, about things we've heard, about uh, we can stay up all night and just conversate about wow, did you hear this guy say that? And what do you think of this? And what do you think of that? And I've oftentimes told Tina, Tina, you know what? Just don't ever, just turn that guy off. Just turn him off. And then I'll tell her why. For those of you who did wow, women of the word, you read through the Bible in a year, congratulations to you. Take my hat off to you for getting past the book of Deuteronomy. And then numbers on top of that. <laughs> And then Leviticus, <laughs> ouch, <laughs> snorefest, because we don't understand it. Let me say that, all right? <laughs> I mean, it's, it, it's sometimes beyond us. But anyway, so for Women of the Word, uh, Tina would send me something, and she'd say, hey, what do you think of this? And I would say to her what I thought. And some of them, 
are acceptable, others are completely unacceptable. And I'll give you one example because I think it's, it's, it's really good. Um, Tim Mackey, who is the head of, or the, the face of the Bible Project, um, I used to listen to him quite a bit because he's so impressive. They make these short videos, I'm sure you've seen them, but the Bible Project pushes out videos on all these different books of the Bible, and man, do they do a fantastic job. As a matter of fact, the Bible Project's one of the biggest ministries, um, at least online ministries, and very credible, heavily employed. Uh, they got a lot of staff. And, um, but anyhow, so I started listening to Tim Mackey quite a while ago, and then I came into his position on the penal substitutionary atonement of Christ. The penal substitutionary atonement of Christ is that the penalty against your sin fell upon your substitute, Jesus, who by taking upon himself your penalty made atonement between you and God. He brought atonement between you and God by becoming a substitute and taking what the penalty you deserved upon himself. Now, there has been what we call um, now that name just slips my mind. You know, when all of the righteousness of God falls upon you and all of your sin falls upon Christ. Double imputation, thank you. So the double imputation is how, is, is exactly what happened there. Now the penal substitution atonement of Christ is in fact the heart of the gospel. But what these people are saying, Tim Mackey included, is that, well, how, how, would, you, how would you think it's just for the innocent person to die on behalf of the guilty person and the judge that oversaw all of that is just. How impossible is that? And what, is it, what does it say about God if He goes and He crushes to death His own child? Isn't that cosmic child abuse? And so they go about the penal substitution atonement in a very, very negative way. And the only problem with that is that is the, that is the actual gospel. Now what are you going to do? Now you have this fantastic ministry who just threw away the heart of the gospel. Later on, I, I heard him just off the cuff mention something about hell and completely denying that there is such a place. Well, the only problem is to Mackey and the Bible, um, the Bible Project, really everything that they do, 98% of all that they do is fantastic. It's simply fantastic. Book after book of the Bible, if you go and you watch them, it's, you can't deny that it's fantastic. The only problem is they threw away the heart of the gospel. Now what? Now if you got the penal substitution atonement of Christ right and the, and the rest of the scriptures wrong, you know, I wouldn't be so vehemently against you that. You, know? <laughs> you can't touch Christ or his, or his message. Neither of those two can you touch. Galatians 1 verse 6 and 9 says, I am astonished that you are so quickly desert, uh, deserting him who called you in the grace of Christ and are turning to a different gospel. Not that there is another one. There is no other gospel. But there is some who trouble you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But one who preached to you, uh, but even if we or an angel, we or an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to the one we have received or preached to you, let him be what? Accursed. As we have said before, so now I say again, if anyone is preaching to you a gospel contrary to the one you have received, let him be accursed. And so I am saying that husbands have responsibility in their marriage, a responsibility that we see Adam not fulfill. There's a role, there's a response, and there's a responsibility. The role for the husband is he's the head of the wife. The role Adam had was that he was the head of Eve. The responsibility that he had was to protect her, and evidently he did not. And so it's very important for us to make sure that we are always on the same page with uh, regards to the Word of God in our marriages. This is big because 
every time I see, and we go through that oftentimes here in the church, you know, where people go into, people go through difficult spots within their marriages, and I can always go like, but how about this verse? Yeah, well, we don't agree on it. Oh, wow, okay. Well, where did you get your idea from this verse? Oh, from this guy. Where did she get her idea from this verse? Oh, from this guy. Can you see what I'm saying? So Satan really wants to dismantle the marriage. He wants to dismantle that covenant, which is the one covenant that expresses all other covenants. And we are a covenant community because ultimately we have a covenant with God the Father. And Satan, through, Mark, watch, you know this is true. Feminism is coming after Christ and His church, coming after covenant communities. You've never seen anything like this before. I mean, to the day now where you have to believe somebody because they're female, and you cannot believe the other person because they're male. As if, as if evidence was never necessary for anything. And I'm saying all of this, I'm saying all of this to you only because we have to drive the point home that if, in fact, we ignore the Word of God when it comes to roles, and we ignore the Word of God when it comes to responsibilities and responses, there will be a future problem here. And, he, and here's Adam and Eve's very first two children. At enmity of one another, the one kills the other. Where does that come from? It comes from what they did that was not right. All I'm saying is at the end of, at the end of the road, of ignoring God's prescriptive, not descriptive, but prescriptive roles for husband and prescriptive role for wife, there is a train wreck. There is a train wreck. And so we're talking about covenant relationships. Covenant relationships. Responses make or break a relationship. Ephesians 5.25 says, Husbands, love your wives. Prescriptive. Just as Christ loved the church. Prescriptive. Excuse me. Husbands, love your wives. Prescriptive. Just as Christ loved the church. Descriptive. And gave himself up for her. Ephesians 5.33 says, So again I say, a man must love his wife. Prescriptive. And here comes, the, here comes the descriptive part as part of himself. Just like he loves himself, in that way he needs to love his wife. And the wife must see to it that she deeply respects her husband, obeying, praising, and honoring him. Yeah, but he's not a great guy. No, you don't do that because he's great. You do that because the Bible tells us to do this. The husband says, yeah, I would love my wife like Christ loved the church, if, if only she would. No, you see, it, it actually, your marriage is not between you and your spouse. You are married to that person before God. Therefore, all of the prescriptive commands that He has given you, and He, and he explains to you what it looks like. Husbands, love your wives how? Like Christ loves the church. Like you love yourself, your own body. So he gives us the description of what he prescribes for us to do. And because we said, I do, before God at a church, before the preacher, we did it before God. Therefore, we are responsible before God or to God to, uh, um, to fulfill our responsibilities. We are accountable before God to fulfill our responsibilities. Are you with me this morning? All right. Because at the end of the day, did you know that every single one of your relationships you may have with a person, but you have that relationship before God? Every relationship you have, those people you employ, those people who employ you, you have a certain relationship with them, but it's before God that you have that relationship. Your neighbor, you have a relationship with your neighbor because of where you live but it's before God because He was the one who told you to love that neighbor, right? So every relationship, siblings, parents, children, husband and wife, wives and church members, we all have relationships with one another, but we are held accountable as to how we respond in these relationships. We are held accountable by God because He's the one that gave us the responsibility of how to act. 
Ephesians 5.33, so I say again, a man must love his wife as part of himself, and the wife must see to it that she deeply respects her husband, obeying, praising, and honoring him. Not because he's honorable, because God called you to that response. Then you are in the will of God, no matter who you're married to. You might ask, well, how can this horrible marriage possibly be God's will for me? I mean, this is, Joel Osteen said that I deserve only the best. And I don't think this husband of mine is the best for me. I must be out of God's will for my life. (laughs) Well, actually, said um, Andre, And I were talking yesterday, (laughs) and we were just talking about sales. Like when when a guy sells something to somebody else, you know, uh, they can say, well, you know what? Um, When the guy goes, well, I don't need this product. You go, well, you know what? I think that this is going to work out for you. You're going to really benefit of this product. Why? Because maybe God um, is blessing me by you buying this product. (laughs) So he'll say, yeah. And that becomes a blessing to you. But anyhow, my point is just sometimes God gives you a partner, the exact partner that you need, because their downside or their difficult part within their life is what God uses as an instrument to do certain things within your life. Now, this doesn't just pertain to marriage, but this pertains to us here as a church too. You might be serving in a depart- you might be serving in the children's ministry. You pick on them. And uh, you might have an assistant that's a bit of a thorn in the flesh to you. Well, you realize that the proverbial thorn in the flesh was actually God's doing in order to do something in Paul, right? <laughs> so sometimes God puts relationships in your life in order to do something in you. So in the same way, I see how marriage is God's way of training us and raising us up in the faith and in godliness. The potter takes the lump of clay and then puts that clay on the wheel called the potter's wheel. That wheel's spinning and spinning and spinning. And God forms and fashions this clay into whatever item He wants a part, all sorts of things. Marriage is, in fact, the potter's wheel in your life. That is what God puts you on, and then God shapes you and forms you into a vessel for His glory, for His purpose. God knows what I would have been like or who I would have been had I not gotten married. God put me on that potter's wheel, Because God gave me Tina. But God also gave Tina me. And, and I have trained, God has trained Tina on repentance. God has trained Tina in patience because of me. I wanted us to look, like, look at some of these, um, you know, some of these items or some of these things that God is trying to do in us because And He's trying to do it in us through marriage also. First, I've learned in marriage, God teaches us, God trains us in patience. When it comes to patience, I've learned in marriage that patience isn't just sitting and waiting for somebody. Of course, it's it's the attitude in which you do that. Uh, That's patience. Anybody sits and waits in the doctor's room at the DMV, everybody has forced to wait. And that doesn't make you patience. It's the attitude you have while you're sitting there waiting. But it's true in many ways because we have to become patient with one another, not because they deserve our patience, but because God was patient with you. God was patient with you. 
we talk about this all the time. I don't forgive because the person repented. I forgive that person even if they don't repent, but I forgive them because God has already forgiven me. I love because God loved me. I am generous because God was generous toward me. I show mercy because God is merciful toward me. In the same way, I'm patient with my covenant partner, even in her blind spots and misunderstandings, because God is patient with me in my blind spots and my misunderstandings. Patient with me, <coughs> not just when I misunderstand, but when I understand, but I refuse. <laughs> However, here's another truth about patience is that the Lord didn't tell us to show patience. He told us to be patient. You have to be it. You have to become the patient person. Otherwise, what you are is you're the person that, that today you have a good day, therefore you offer patience. But tomorrow when it's not a good day, you don't offer patience. So basically, now you use patience as something you can barter with your children. Like, okay, I'm done with patience. You know, like, now you guys better jump. Now you, now you better do the right thing. I'm done with you. you know, now, I'm not saying don't, don't draw lines with your kids. I'm just saying when it comes to being patient, you have to become the patient person and not just the one who sometimes shows patience. Be patient with others. This is who you are now. You're the patient person. You defer to your spouse, no matter how irritated your flesh may be. You crucify the flesh, and you be patient because God was patient with you. You see, it's a two-year-old child that screams because they didn't get their way fast enough. You, on the other hand, you're patient because you're no longer two years old. But when you are patient is when you reflect who God is to you. When you are patient, you are reflecting who God is to you. God is using marriage to mature you. He's using marriage to raise you up. Because we see the first thing is marriage works patience in us. The second thing is marriage works humility in us. Marriage has forced me to apologize to Tina more than I like to and ask her to forgive me more than I planned to. And uh, this makes me humble. And the same, same thing is true for me and my children. <clears throat> Marriage, in, in, in my estimation, is the greatest school of humility. At least in my life it has been. <coughs> because your spouse sees your Sunday face and your Friday night face. <laughs> right? She sees your, uh, your husband sees your best and your worst days, ma'am. And then he continues to love you in spite of you. And that is very humbling. God loved me while I was his enemy, and we have to love our spouse even on the days when it seems like she's an enemy rather than a friend. The third thing that God works in you through marriage is repentance, repentance. I remember we just got back from honeymoon. There was a conference at the church. Oh, thank you, brother. There was a conference at the church, and uh, after, after the last night, we all... Um, Four of us were standing backstage just chatting. Two pastors, myself, and Tina were standing next to me. And we had just got, like I said, come back from honeymoon. And I tried to be funny. Um, that's always a danger. You've, this happened to you. You cracked a joke, and the room went silent. And now you don't know how to backtrack. And I think to myself, <laughs> sometimes, <laughs> Alex, the only time I open my mouth is to change feet, right? I'm like, all right, time to change feet. <laughs> but uh, I tried to be funny, and I said something about Tina that embarrassed her in front of these other two pastors. We drove home, and she was crying in the car, and, and, I, and I had to repent to her, and I realized how totally out of line I was. And um, it really struck my heart because I, I certainly didn't mean that. 
I looked at myself, the fool, the jerk, the arrogant. All you wanted to do was trying to be the life of the party and at the expense of others. And I think, you know, moments like that really teaches you true sorrow in I'm sorry. Because we do with our children, we, we tell them, don't stop saying you're sorry. Uh, they do something and they, or they forget to do something. Hey, take out the trash, rub it. Uh, no, sorry, Dad, I didn't. No, you, don't say sorry. You're not sorry. <clears throat> you can apologize. But when you say you're, you're sorrowful, you have sorrow over something that actually needs to mean something. That actually needs to mean something. When you go through moments in life where the person most committed to you and closest to you is the one you hurt, uh, when, to the point when it hurts you and, and you become sorrowful over it, that's, tra- that's repentance and training. And uh, I repented that night in the sense of that I'll never be that jerk or that fool again to the best of my ability. And uh, allow God to work that in me. But without marriage, that probably couldn't have happened to the same extent because there's nobody else I was that close to or that was that vulnerable to me or that reliant upon me or that needed to trust me that now can't <clears throat> in public. So the only possible way out there for me was absolute repentance. But actual repentance where there's fruits of repentance, Right? So allow God to use your marriage to mold you into the man of God or the woman of God that he's called you to be. And I want to extend this beyond just marriage, and I want to tell you that the relationships that you are in, at least the close relationships that you are in where people um, assume trust, repentance is the thing that keeps that healthy bond. I could have said, ah, stop being so sensitive. I could have shrugged it off. But that's never a good thing to do. Asking your spouse for forgiveness for something should be a very regular thing. You shouldn't have to point back to 1932 when I repented once. You know? (laughs) Yeah, I'm a repentant individual. Remember? I wept a tear. Repentance should be a regular thing. Why? Because we regularly step over the line with each other. Regularly do so. You see, every single relationship that you have can become charged, whether it be your marriage relationship, the relationship you have with your children can become charged. The relationships that we have here with one another in the church can become charged. Where you build things up against that person. Becomes charged like a, Doug Wilson explained it this way, like a cloud becomes charged. And there's so much electricity there, it has to ground. And that is when lightning strikes. Because there was just so much charge in that cloud. And in a relationship or in a room like this, there can be a lot of charge. But that thing that grounds it, that empties out the charge, is what? Repentance. Repentance. Clear the charge that's existing in your relationship because people go like, well, you know, all I said was this and I can't believe she just blew up like that. Well, it's not because of that last, that's the last straw that broke the camel's back. There were one and a half million things that, came, that, that ran up to this moment. <clears throat> she, didn't break the, she didn't break up your, your marriage because uh, you didn't like her burnt toast that she gave you or something. You know, she didn't break, you, break up the marriage because of that. That was the lightning that struck. That was the, the charge that needed to be ground, that, that needed to ground <coughs> and neutralize. So the point, what I'm, what I'm bringing home here is that we, have, we can have healthy relationships and we are told to have healthy relationships and God gave us the means by which we can have healthy relationships and that is through both repentance and forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness, repentance and forgiveness. I forgive you even if you don't repent and I will repent even if I never see you repenting. Because what we do in marriages is we don't, we, we don't do something until we see our spouse do it. We used to have a guy in church here. I kid you not. We celebrate each other a lot. And, and he used to, 
every Thanksgiving, Christmas, and birthday, he had these three lists. And he used to write on each list what he got from people. And then he's like, oh, come on. They bought me a $50 gift. Are you serious? Now I have to buy them a $50 gift. <laughs> and the people who did not buy them anything. If he only got a card, that's all he gives is a card. <laughs> like I got a card from one guy once, nicest guy in the world. God, it's my birthday, so he pulls out a, a Starbucks card. When I opened it up, it said, to Joe. I'm like, your name is Joe. <laughs> anyway, it said, it said $50. I'm like, nah, I'm going to take it. Go to Starbucks. It says, sir, you only have 27 cents on this card. <laughs> so I wrote it down. 20 cents. <laughs> I'm kidding. <laughs> no, I wouldn't do that. But my point is just, you know, in marriage, you can't live like that. You can't live tit for tat. You can't forgive because you are uh, because you know somebody repented or repent because others repent. You can't do that. You are married to a person before God, and you are held accountable by God for the responsibilities He gave you, which is to repent and forgive. Why? Because He's forgiven you for a lot more than you have to forgive your spouse for, right? Or your children, or your church family members. Marriage teaches us, let's jump to number five, commitment, commitment. <clears throat> commitment is interesting because your commitment to your spouse is only validated by the end of your life and not by the beginning of it. If it was validated by the beginning of your marriage, all you needed to do is say, I take you as my lawfully wedded husband for the rest of my life to death do us part in health or sickness then you would be committed. But that's not true. Um, commitment is proven by the end of something, not the beginning of it. Commitment works this way. After I have finished the race is when my commitment becomes true or false. Matthew 24, 13 says, But he who endures to the end shall be saved. Now, that's a salvation passage, <clears throat> but I'm referring to the relationship between Christ and us. You're going to serve the Lord for the rest of your life. You're going to persevere because He preserves you. You're going to persevere to the end because He preserves you. Therefore, when you get a crown, when you get to heaven, you'll take it off and put it at His feet because it was all He's doing. Marriage teaches us commitment. And then number six, marriage teaches us faithfulness. Faithfulness requires not just externals, but internals also. An example is, you know, if you, have, <clears throat> if you have a choir, let's say, for instance, okay, we have a band here at the church, and, and somebody joins our band, and this person is always earliest and stays latest and never misses a rehearsal, never misses a Sunday, always there for the rehearsals. This person knows their parts. They practice. But what they do is they come and they gossip all day long about the pianist. <laughs> they, they, they cause so much strife between people, but they're always there. They're always there, them and Satan, always there, present. <laughs> yes, I'm faithful, always there. But, fa but faithfulness is not just external, it's also internal. The Lord has called us to faithfulness to one another because that is how we reflect His character. There is no other human arrangement in life that teaches faithfulness like marriage does. Marriage, the marriage you have, is your opportunity to reflect God's glory, God's faithfulness, God's work, God's future. Number seven, marriage trains us in holiness. How true that is. If you were married to Tina, you will know what I'm saying. Marriage trains us in holiness. Holiness. The word holiness means to be separated unto. That's the original 
most, that's the dominant word meaning of holiness, is separated unto. The secondary meaning of holiness is moral perfection. Moral perfection. So there are these two things about holiness. Exclusivity and moral perfection. That's holiness. <clears throat> God is using your marriage to teach you the meaning of holiness, the meaning of being separated unto a single person, the meaning of exclusivity. Number eight, marriage teaches us self or sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Sacrificial love. Not emotional love, sacrificial love, which means contrary to your emotion. Nobody has to be taught how to lust. That's natural. Marriage teaches us how to love through commitment, which is not natural. Marriage teaches us how to love through understanding, which needs to be gained. It doesn't come naturally. Marriage teaches us how to love through sacrifice, which is painful. It goes contrary to your will. It goes, well, it goes contrary to your emotions, your wishes, goes contrary to your timetable. Sacrifice always happens at the most inconvenient time. Marriage teaches us how to obey God. Marriage teaches us how to love in obedience and not just in emotion. And I think really, forget everything that you, that you heard today, but remember this one thing. Marriage teaches you how to love because you're obedient, not because you feel. Because what is, what's going to happen the day you don't have a feeling? Most people's marriages hang on a feeling, yours, on obedience. Doesn't mean there isn't any feeling. It just means that there's a submission to God's prescriptive will for your life. Marriage teaches us Generosity. Number nine. And then number ten, marriage teaches us self-control. Marriage teaches us self-control. Galatians chapter 5 verse 22 sin 23 says, But the fruit of the Spirit is love. It is peace, joy, forbearance, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. <clears throat> self-control. No other place where self-control is tested more than in marriage, or let's go beyond marriage in covenant relationship. So here I would like to mention that. <coughs> that. In a church relationship like this, a covenant community, God will absolutely put you through trials. The question is, when you go through a trial, how do you know if it's a test, a trial, or a temptation? How do you know this? Well, this is not a test. This is not a trial. This is just a temptation. Or, this is not a temptation. This is a test and a trial. We always ask that question because we know that God will put us through tests. God will put us through trials in our marriages, in our relationships, in our family, and even here at church. But, what that brother did to me is a temptation, or that sister is a temptation... You know, um, I'm going to reject them or I'm going to now start gossiping about them. I'm going to draw lines with them. My point I'm trying to say is it doesn't matter if it's a test or a temptation. You have to respond the same way. You have to remain faithful. You have to remain kind. You have to remain self-controlled. And in this relationship that we have, in marriage, with our children, or at church, we have to exercise self-control because we will be tested and we will have trials. What I am saying is there isn't going to be a Christian brother or sister who joins a church that's not going to experience offense inside of that church. That's what I wanted to say. It took me a while. <laughs> so let me say it again. Since <laughs> there isn't a brother or sister that's going to be part of a healthy covenant community that isn't going to be tested by God through hurts and offenses, disappointments by the people 
that they are called to love. Because even in marriage, in this covenant relationship, there are also tests and trials where you are called to love contrary to feeling because of obedience and because I'm going to pass the test, I'm going to get through this trial. So we learn to love by passing tests and trials. My point is, here in this church, I bet you, I bet you, you can point to somebody or list a couple of people where you too can go online and cry about church hurt. Well, you know, like people in that church hurt me. Well, they, you know, the only church hurt that we need to actually have in mind is the cross. That's the only church hurt that's really important for us to consider. But if somebody else hurts you, this is, a t- this is a test, this is a trial. Pass it. That's how we respond. Amen? Through love. Marriage has taught me the gospel. And I'm going to close with this. Marriage has taught me the gospel. More specifically so, marriage has taught me the doctrines of grace. I chose Tina. Among all others, I chose her. Instead of asking, hey, do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Do you love me? Yes, I do, wife. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Do you love me? Yes, I do. Um, Yeah. You being chosen is a sign that you have been loved. Right? I chose Tina, among others. And since I chose her, I started shining my shoes. That day I chose her. I started combing my hair. I went to the gym. (laughs) I washed my car. I started taking her to dinners. Why? Because my goal was to make myself irresistible to this one I have chosen. The fact that I chose her limited my love exclusively to her alone. Not only did I choose her and become irresistible to her, but limited unto her. Since we got married, she has not only seen my best side, but also my worst. In other words, she has recognized my depravity more than ever before. It has been revealed to her. And finally... Since we have been married for one and a half decades, I realize that it is my responsibility to make this marriage work for the rest of my life and to be committed, to be faithful, to be who God has called me to be. The head of her is to save my marriage. In other words, I'm working at persevering. It's my job. Persevering in marriage for the rest of our lives, that is my role that I play. So there is the gospel for you. Election, I chose her. Irresistible grace, she can tell you all about it. Limited unto her, recognizing my total depravity, but at the same time, perseverance all the way to the end. I want to close by saying, no, you did not marry the wrong person. Marriage was not supposed to be like your high school date. We need to grow beyond that. Stop thinking back to those moments. That's not what marriage is. Marriage is the potter's wheel in your life. Go beyond marriage. Relationships that you have in this body of Christ, this is God's potter's wheel in your life. God has called you to relationships. Now give yourself to... God's way of forming and fashioning you. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for showing us a well-ordered covenant community of believers. I pray, Father, that your examples in Scripture, your examples of marriage, of covenant relationships, will permeate and filter through all of our relationships that we have in Christ. And I thank you, Lord, that... You will teach us, train us, 
Mold us and make us into who you have called us to be in order to fulfill your purposes in us and through us as these relationships that you have placed us in is your tool through which you do much of the work that you do in us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Did you get something out of the Word this morning? Amen.